0: Hello, this is Kelly McGee and part two of the Illuminati's plans, secret plans, that were caught on tape back in 1967. And all their fronts, such as the ADL, the NAACP, SNCC, and such Illuminati tools as Martin Lucifer King, Such investigations will completely unmask all the leaders in Washington and the Illuminati and all their affiliations and affiliates as traitors carrying out the Illuminati plot. It will completely unmask the United Nations as the intended crux of the entire plot and force Congress to take the US out of the UN and hurl the UN out of the US. In fact, it will destroy the UN and the entire plot. Before I close this phase, I wish to reiterate and stress one vital point, which I urge you to never forget if you wish to save our country for your children and their children. Here is the point. Every unconstitutional and unlawful act committed by Woodrow Wilson, by Franklin Roosevelt, by Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy, and are now being committed by Johnson, is exactly in line with the Illuminati conspirators' centuries-old plot outlined by Weishaupt and Albert Pike. Every vicious decision issued by the traitorous Earl Warren and his equally traitorous Supreme Court justices was directly in line with what the Illuminati blueprint required, that all the treason committed by our State Department under Rusk And earlier by John Forster, Dulles, and Marshall, also all the treason committed by McNamara and his predecessors, is directly in line with that same Illuminati blueprint for the takeover of the world. Also, the amazing treason by various members of our Congress, especially by the 66 senators who signed for the consular treaty, has been committed on orders from the Illuminati. Now I will go back to Jacob Schiff's entrapment of our money system and the treasonous actions that followed. It will also reveal the Schiff-Rothschild control of not only Karl Marx, but of Lenin, Trotsky, and Stalin, who created the revolution in Russia and set up the Communist Party. It was in 1908 that Schiff decided the time had come for his seizure of our money system. His chief lieutenants in that seizure were Colonel Edward Mandel House, whose entire career was that of chief executive and courier for Schiff, as I shall show, Bernard Baruch and Herbert Lehman. In the fall of that year, they assembled in secret conclave at the Jekyll Island Hunt Club, owned by J.P. Morgan at Jekyll Island, Georgia. Among those present were J.P. Morgan, John D. Rockefeller, Colonel House, Senator Nelson Aldrich, Schiff, Stillman and Vanderlip of the New York National City Bank, W.N.J. Seligman, Eugene Meyer, Bernard Baruch, Herbert Lehman, Paul Warburg, in short, all of the international bankers in America, all of them members of the hierarchy of the Illuminati's great conspiracy. A week later, they emerged with what they called the Federal Reserve System. Senator Aldrich was the stooge who was to railroad it through Congress. But they held that railroading in abeyance for one chief reason. They would first have to plant their man, an obedient stooge, in the White House to sign the Federal Reserve Act into law. They knew that even if the Senate would pass that act unanimously, the then newly elected President Taft would promptly veto it. So they waited. In 1912, their man, Woodrow Wilson, was elected to the presidency. Immediately after Wilson was inaugurated, Senator Aldrich railroaded the Federal Reserve Act through both houses of Congress, and Wilson promptly signed it. Okay, it's buffering. Oh, let's see if I can get it on another device. Fr ...and all their fronts, such as the ADL, the NAACP, SNCC, and such Illuminati tools as Martin Lucifer King such investigations will completely unmask all the leaders in washington and the illuminati and all their affiliations and affiliates as traitors carrying out the illuminati plot it will completely unmask the united nations as the intended crux of the entire plot and force congress to take the u.s out of the u.n and hurl the u.n out of the u.s in fact it will destroy the u.n and the entire plot. Before I close this phase, I wish to reiterate and stress one vital point, which I urge you to never forget if you wish to save our country for your children and their children. Here is the point. Every unconstitutional and unlawful act committed by Woodrow Wilson, by Franklin Roosevelt, by Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy, and are now being committed by Johnson, is exactly in line with the Illuminati conspirators' centuries-old plot outlined by Weishaupt and Albert Pike. Every vicious decision issued by the traitorous Earl Warren and his equally traitorous Supreme Court justices was directly in line with what the Illuminati blueprint required, that all the treason committed by our State Department under Rusk and earlier by John Forster, Dulles, and Marshall, also all the treason committed by McNamara and his predecessors is directly in line with that same Illuminati blueprint for the takeover of the world. Also the amazing treason by various members of our Congress, especially by the 66 senators who signed for the consular treaty, has been committed on orders from the Illuminati. Now I will go back to Jacob Schiff's entrapment of our money system and the treasonous actions that followed. It will also reveal the Schiff-Rothschild control of not only Karl Marx, but of Lenin, Trotsky, and Stalin, who created the revolution in Russia and set up the Communist Party. It was in 1908 that Schiff decided the time had come for his seizure of our money system. His chief lieutenants in that seizure were Colonel Edward Mandelhaus, whose entire career was that of chief executive and courier for Schiff, as I shall show, Bernard Baruch and Herbert Lehman. In the fall of that year, they assembled in secret conclave at the Jekyll Island Hunt Club, owned by J.P. Morgan at Jekyll Island, Georgia. Among those present were J.P. Morgan, John D. Rockefeller, Colonel House, Senator Nelson Aldrich, Schiff, Stillman and Vanderlip of the New York National City Bank, w. N. J. Seligman, Eugene Meyer, Bernard Baruch, Herbert Lehman, Paul Warburg, in short, all of the international bankers in America, all of them members of the hierarchy of the Illuminati's Great Conspiracy. A week later, they emerged with what they called the Federal Reserve System. Senator Aldridge was the stooge who was to railroad it through Congress. But they held that railroading in abeyance for one chief reason. They would first have to plant their man, an obedient stooge, in the White House to sign the Federal Reserve Act into law. They knew that even if the Senate would pass that act unanimously the then newly elected President Taft would promptly veto it. So they waited. In 1912, their man, Woodrow Wilson, was elected to the presidency. Immediately after Wilson was inaugurated, Senator Aldrich railroaded the Federal Reserve Act through both houses of Congress. And Wilson promptly signed it. And the Federal Reserve Act became law. That heinous act of treason was committed in December 23, 1913, two days before Christmas, when all the members of Congress, except for several carefully picked representatives and three equally carefully picked senators, were away from Washington. How heinously treasonous was that act, I'll tell you. Our founding fathers knew full well the power of money, They knew that whoever had that power held the destiny of our nation in his hands. Therefore, they carefully guarded this power when they set forth in the Constitution that Congress, the elected representatives of the people, alone would have that power. The constitutional language on this point is brief, concise, and specific, stated in Article I, Section 8, Paragraph 5, defining the duties and powers of Congress, and I quote, To coin money, regulate the value thereof, and a foreign coin, and the standard of weights and measures, unquote. But on that tragic, unforgettable day of infamy, December 23, 1913, the men we sent to Washington to safeguard our interests, the representatives and senators and Woodrow Wilson, delivered the destiny of our nation into the hands of two aliens from Eastern Europe, Jacob Schiff and Paul Warburg. Warburg was a very recent immigrant who came here on orders from Rothschild for the express purpose of blueprinting that foul Federal Reserve Act. Now, the vast majority of the American people think that the Federal Reserve System is a United States government-owned agency. That is positively false. All of the stock of the Federal Reserve Banks is owned by the member banks. And the heads of the member banks are all members of the hierarchy of the great Illuminati conspiracy known today as the CFR. The details of that act of treason in which many traitorous so-called Americans participated are far too long for this recording. But all those details are available in a book entitled The Federal Reserve Conspiracy, written by Eustace Mullins. In that book, Mullins tells the entire horrifying story and backs it up with unquestionable documentations. Aside from it being a truly fascinating and shocking story of that great betrayal, every American should read it as a matter of vital intelligence for the time when the whole American people will finally come awake and smash the entire conspiracy. And with God's help, that awakening will surely come. You can get a copy of that book from the publishers, the Christian Educational Association, 530 Chestnut Street, Union, New Jersey. Now, if you think that those aliens and their by accident of birth American co-conspirators would be content with just the control of our money system, you're in for another very sad shock. The Federal Reserve System gave the conspirators complete control of our money system, but it in no way touched the earnings of the people because the Constitution positively forbids what is now known as the 20% withholding tax. But the Illuminati blueprint for one-world enslavement called for the confiscation of all private property and control of individual earning powers. This and Karl Marx stressed that feature in his blueprint, had to be accomplished by a progressive graduated income tax. As I stated, such a tax could not lawfully be imposed upon the American people. It is succinctly and expressly forbidden by our Constitution. Thus, only an amendment to the Constitution could give the federal government such confiscatory powers. Well, that too was not an insurmountable problem for our Machiavellian plotters. The same elected leaders in both houses of Congress and the same Mr. Woodrow Wilson, who signed the infamous Federal Reserve Act into law, amended the Constitution to make the federal income tax known as the 16th Amendment a law of the land. Both are illegal under our Constitution. In short, the same traitors signed both betrayals, the Federal Reserve Act and the 16th Amendment, into law. However, it seems that nobody ever realized that the 16th Amendment was set up to rob, and I do mean rob, the people of their earnings via the income tax provision. The plotters didn't fully use that provision until World War II, when that gray humanitarian, Franklin Roosevelt, applied a 20% withholding tax on all small wage earners and up to 90% on higher incomes oh of course he faithfully promised that it would be only for the duration of the war but what was a promise to such a charlatan who in 1940 when he was running for his third term kept proclaiming I say again and again and again that I will never send American boys to fight on foreign soil Remember? He was proclaiming that even as he was already preparing to plunge us into World War II by enticing the Japanese into that sneak attack on Pearl Harbor to furnish him with his excuse. And before I forget, let me remind you that another charlatan named Woodrow Wilson used exactly that same campaign slogan in 1916. His slogan was, re-elect the man who will keep your sons out of the war exactly the same formula exactly the same promises but wait as al jolson used to say you ain't heard nothing yet that 16th amendment income tax trap was intended to confiscate rob the earnings only of the common herd you and me it was not intended to even touch The huge incomes of the Illuminati gang, the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, the Laymans, and all the other conspirators. So together with that 16th Amendment, they created what they called the tax-free foundations. That would enable the conspirators to transform their huge wealth into such so-called foundations and avoid payment of virtually all income taxes. The excuse for it was that the earnings of those tax-free foundations would be devoted to humanitarian philanthropy. So we now have the several Rockefeller foundations, the Carnegie Endowment Fund, the Ford Foundation, the Mellon Foundation, and hundreds of similar tax-free foundations. And what kind of philanthropy do these foundations support? Well, they finance all the civil rights groups, that are creating all the chaos and rioting all over the country. They finance the Martin Lucifer Kings. The Ford Foundation finances the Center for the Study of Democratic Institutions in Santa Barbara, commonly referred to as Moscow West, and which is headed by Wonderboy Hutchins, Walter Ruther, Irwin Canham, and others of that ilk. In short, The Tax-Free Foundation financed those who are doing the job for the Illuminati Great Conspiracy. And what are the hundreds of billions of dollars they confiscate every year from the earnings of the common herd, you and me, used for? Well, for one thing, there's the foreign aid gimmick, which gave billions to communist Tito, plus gifts of hundreds of jet planes, many of which were turned over to Castro plus the costs of training communist pilots so that they can the better shoot down our planes, billions to Red Poland, billions to India, billions to Sukarno, billions to other enemies of the United States. That's what that treasonously railroaded 16th Amendment has done to our nation, to the American people, to you and to me, to your children and their children. Our CFR Illuminati-controlled federal government can grant tax-free status to all foundations and pro-red one-word outfits, such as the Fund for the Republic. But if you, or a patriotic pro-organization, is too outspokenly a pro-American, they can terrify and intimidate you by finding a misplaced comma in your income tax report and by threatening you with penalties, fines, and even prison. Future historians will wonder how the American people could have been so naive and stupid as to have permitted such audaciously brazen acts of treason as the Federal Reserve Act and the 16th Amendment. Well, they were not naive and they were not stupid. The answer is they trusted the men they elected to safeguard our country and our people. And they just didn't have even an inkling about either betrayal until after each one had been accomplished. It was the Illuminati-controlled mass communications media that kept and is keeping our people naive and stupid and unaware of the treason being committed. Now the great question is, when will the people wake up and do to our traitors of today... What George Washington and our founding fathers would have done to Benedict Arnold. Actually, Benedict Arnold was a petty traitor compared to our present traitors in Washington. Now let's go back to the events that followed the rape of our Constitution by the passage of the Federal Reserve Act of the 16th Amendment. With Wilson completely under their control, the masterminds of the great conspiracy put in motion their next and what they hoped would be their final steps to achieve their one-world government. The first of those steps was to be World War I. Why war? Simple. The only excuse for a one-world government is that it will supposedly ensure peace. The only thing that can make people cry for peace is war. War brings chaos, destruction, exhaustion to winner as well as to loser. It brings economic ruin to both. Most important, it destroys the flower of the young manhood of both. To the saddened and heartbroken oldsters, the mothers and fathers, who are left with nothing but memories of their beloved sons, peace becomes worth any price. And that is the emotion upon which the conspirators depend for the success of their satanic plot. Throughout the 19th century, from 1814 to 1914, the world as a whole was at peace. Such wars as the Franco-Prussian, our own civil war, the Russo-Japanese war, were what might be termed local disturbances that did not affect the rest of the world. All the great nations were prosperous. The peoples staunchly nationalistic and fiercely proud of their sovereignties. It was utterly unthinkable that the French and the German peoples would be willing to live under a one-world government, or the Turks and the Russians, or the Chinese and the Japanese. Even more unthinkable that a Kaiser Wilhelm, or a Franz Joseph, or a Tsar Nicholas, or any monarch would willingly and meekly surrender his throne to a one-world government. But bear in mind that the peoples in all nations are the real power, and only one thing, war could make the people's yearn and clamor for a peace-insuring one-world government. But it would have to be a frightful and horribly devastating war. It could not be just a local disturbing war between just two nations. It would have to be a world war. No major nation must be left untouched by the horrors and devastation of such a war. The cry for peace must be made universal. Actually, that was the format set by the Illuminati and Nathan Rothschild at the turn of the 19th century. They first maneuvered all of Europe into the Napoleonic Wars, then the Congress in Vienna, which they, and particularly Rothschild, planned to transform into a League of Nations, which was to have been the housing for their one world government, exactly as the present United Nations was set up to be the housing for the forthcoming God forbid, one world government. Anyway, that was the format the House of Rothschild and Jacob Schiff decided to employ to achieve their objective in 1914. Of course, they knew that that same format had failed in 1814, but they theorized that was only because the Tsar of Russia had torpedoed that scheme. Well, the present 1914 conspirators would eliminate that 1814 fly in the ointment. They'd make sure that after the new world war, they were conspiring there'd be no czar of Russia around to throw monkey wrenches into the machinery. I won't go into how they accomplished this first step to launch a world war. History records that World War I was precipitated by a trivial incident the kind of incident both Weishaupt and Albert Pike had incorporated in their blueprints. That incident was the assassination of an Austrian Archduke, arranged by the Illuminati masterminds. The war followed. It involved Germany, Austria-Hungary, and their allies, so-called the Axis powers against France, Britain, and Russia, called the Allies. Only the United States was not involved during the first two years. By 1917, the conspirators had achieved their primary objective. All of Europe was in a state of destitution. All the peoples were war-weary and crying for peace. And the outcome, too, was all set. It was to come as soon as the United States would be hurled in on the side of the Allies. And that was all set to happen immediately after Wilson's re-election. After that, there could be only one outcome complete victory for the Allies. To fully confirm my statement that long before 1917, the conspiracy headed in America by Jacob Schiff had it all set to hurl the United States into that war, I will cite the proof. When Wilson was campaigning for re-election in 1916, his chief appeal was, re-elect the man who will keep your sons out of the war. But during that same campaign, the Republican Party publicly charged that Wilson had long committed himself to throw us into the war. They charged that if he would be defeated, he would accomplish that act during his few remaining months in office. But if re-elected, he would hold off until after re-election. But at that time, the American people looked upon Wilson as a god man. Well, Wilson was re-elected. And as per the schedule of the conspirators, he hurled us into the war in 1917. He used the sinking of the Lusitania as an excuse, a sinking which also was prearranged. Roosevelt, also a godman in the eyes of the American people, followed the same technique in 1941 when he used the prearranged Pearl Harbor attack as his excuse for hurling us into World War II. Now exactly as the conspirators planned, Victory for the Allies would eliminate all the monarchs of the defeated nations and leave all their peoples leaderless, confused, bewildered, and perfectly conditioned for the one world government the great conspiracy intended would follow. But there still would be an obstacle, the same obstacle that had balked the Illuminati and Rothschild at that Congress in Vienna peace gathering after the Napoleonic Wars. Russia would be on the winning side this time, as it was in 1814. Therefore, the Tsar would be securely on his throne. Here it is pertinent to note that Russia, under the Tsarist regime, had been the one country in which the Illuminati had never made any headway, nor had the Rothschilds ever been able to infiltrate their banking interests. Thus, a winning Tsar would be more difficult than ever to cope with. Even if he could be enticed into a so-called League of Nations, it was a foregone conclusion that he would never but never go for a one-world government. So even before the outbreak of World War I, the conspirators had a plan in the making to carry out Nathan Rothschild's vow of 1814 to destroy the Tsar and also murder all possible royal heirs to the throne, and it would have to be done before the close of the war, and the Russian Bolsheviki were to be their instruments in this particular plot. From the turn of the century, the chiefs of the Bolsheviki were Nikolai Lenin, Leon Trotsky, and later Joseph Stalin. Of course, those were not their true family names. Prior to the outbreak of the war, Lenin headquartered in Paris. After the outbreak, Switzerland became his haven. Trotsky's headquarters were on the Lower East Side in New York, largely the habitat of Russian-Jewish refugees. Both Lenin and Trotsky were similarly bewhiskered and unkempt. In those days, that was the badge of Bolshevism. Both lived well, yet neither had a regular occupation. Neither had any visible means of support, yet both always had plenty of money. All those mysteries were solved in 1917. Right from the outset of the war, strange and mysterious goings-on were taking place in New York. Night after night, Trotsky darted furtively in and out of Jacob Schiff's palatial mansion. And in the dead of those same nights, there were gatherings of hoodlums of New York's Lower East Side, all of them Russian refugees at Trotsky's headquarters, and all were going through some mysterious sort of training process but it was all shrouded in mystery. Nobody talked, although it did leak out that Schiff was financing all of Trotsky's activities. Then suddenly Trotsky vanished. So did approximately 300 of his trained hoodlums. Actually, they were on the high seas in a Schiff-chartered ship bound for a rendezvous with Lenin and his gang in Switzerland and on that ship was $20 million in gold, the $20 million ship provided to finance the Bolsheviki takeover of Russia. In anticipation of Trotsky's arrival, Lenin prepared to throw a party in his Switzerland hideaway. Men of the very highest places in the world were to be guests at that party. Among them were the mysterious Colonel Edward Mandel House, Woodrow Wilson's mentor and palsy Walsey and more important, Schiff's special and confidential messenger. Another of the expectant guests was Warburg of the Warburg Banking Clan in Germany, who were financing the Kaiser, and whom the Kaiser had rewarded by making him chief of the secret police of Germany. In addition, there were the Rothschilds of London and Paris, also Litvinov, Kaganovich, Stalin, who was then head of a train and bank robbing gang of bandits. He was known as the Jesse James of the Urals. And here I must remind that England and France were then long in war with Germany, and that on February 3, 1917, Wilson had broken off all diplomatic relations with Germany. Therefore, Warburg, Colonel House, the Rothschild, and all those others were enemies. But of course, Switzerland was neutral ground where enemies could meet and be friends, especially if they had some scheme in common. That Lenin party was very nearly wrecked by an unforeseen incident. The Schiff chartered ship on its way to Switzerland was intercepted and taken into custody by a British warship. But Schiff quickly rushed orders to Wilson to order the British to release the ship intact with the Trotsky hoodlums and the gold. Wilson obeyed. He warned the British that if they refused to release the ship, the United States would not enter the war in April, as he had faithfully promised a year earlier. The British heeded the warning, Trotsky arrived in Switzerland, and the Lenin party went off as scheduled. But they still faced what ordinarily would have been the insurmountable obstacle of getting the Lenin-Trotsky band of terrorists across the border into Russia. Well, that's where Brother Warburg, chief of the German secret police, came in. He loaded all those thugs into sealed freight cars and made all the necessary arrangement for their secret entry into Russia. The rest is history. The revolution in Russia took place and all members of the royal Romanov family were murdered. Now, my chief objective is to establish beyond even a remote doubt that communism so-called is an integral part of the Illuminati's great conspiracy for the enslavement of the entire world. That communism so called is merely their weapon and bogeyman word to terrify the peoples of the whole world. And that the conquest of Russia and the creation of communism was in great part organized by Schiff and the other international bankers right in our own city of New York. A fantastic story? Yes. Some might even refuse to believe it. Well, for the benefit of any doubting Thomas, I will prove it by reminding that just a few years ago, Charlie Knickerbocker, a Hearst newspaper columnist, published an interview with John Schiff, grandson of Jacob, in which young Schiff confirmed the entire story and named the figure old Jacob contributed $20 million. If anybody still has even a remote doubt that the entire menace of communism was created by the masterminds of the great conspiracy right in our own city of New York, I will cite the following historical fact. All records show that when Lenin and Trotsky engineered the capture of Russia, they operated as heads of the Bolsheviki Party. Now, Bolshevism is a purely Russian word. The masterminds realized that Bolshevism could never be sold as an ideology to any but the Russian people. So in April 1918, Jacob Schiff dispatched Colonel House to Moscow with orders to Lenin, Trotsky and Stalin to change the name of their regime to the Communist Party and to adopt the Karl Marx Manifesto as the Constitution of the Communist Party. Lenin, Trotsky, and Stalin obeyed, and that year of 1918 was when the Communist Party and the menace of communism came into being. All this is confirmed in Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, fifth edition. In short, communism was created by the capitalists. Thus, until November 11, 1918, The entire Fiendish plan of the conspirators worked perfectly. All the great nations, including the United States, were war-weary, devastated, mourning their dead. Peace was the great universal desire. Thus, when it was proposed by Wilson to set up a League of Nations to ensure peace, all the great nations, with no Russian Tsar to stand in their way, jumped on that bandwagon without even stopping to read the fine print in that insurance policy. That is all but one, the United States, the very one that Schiff and his co-conspirators least expected would balk. And that was their one fatal mistake in that early plot. You see, when Schiff planted Woodrow Wilson in the White House, the conspirators assumed that they had the United States in the proverbial bag. Wilson had been perfectly built up as a great humanitarian. He supposedly became established as a godman with the American people. There was every reason for the conspirators to have believed that he would easily hornswoggle Congress into buying the League of Nations sight unseen, exactly as the Congress of 1945 bought the United Nations sight unseen. But there was one man in the Senate in 1918 who saw through that scheme just as the Russian Tsar did in 1814. He was a man of great political stature, almost as great as that of Teddy Roosevelt and fully as astute. He was highly respected and trusted by all members of both houses of Congress and by the American people. The name of that great and patriotic American was Henry Cabot Lodge. Not the phony of today who called himself Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. until he was exposed. Lodge completely unmasked Wilson and kept the United States out of the League of Nations. Here it becomes of great interest to know the real reason for the Wilson League of Nations flop. As I previously stated, Schiff was sent to the United States to carry out four specific assignments. Number one and most important was to acquire complete control of the U.S. money system. Number two, as outlined in the original Weishaupt-Illuminati blueprint, he was to find the right kind of men to serve as stooges for the great conspiracy and promote them into the highest offices in our federal government, our Congress, our U.S. Supreme Court, and all federal agencies, such as the State Department, the Pentagon, the Treasury Department, etc., Number three, destroy the unity of the American people by creating minority group strife throughout the nation, especially between the whites and blacks as outlined in Israel Cohen's book. Number four, create a movement to destroy religion in the United States with Christianity to be the chief target or victim. In addition, he was strongly reminded of the imperative directive in the Illuminati Blueprint to achieve full control of all mass communications media, to be used to brainwash the people into believing and accepting all of the maneuverings of the great conspiracy. Schiff was warned that only control of the press, at that time our only mass communications media, would enable him to destroy the unity of the American people. Now then Schiff and his co-conspirators did set up the NAACP the National Association for the Advancement of the Colored People, in 1909. And in 1913, he set up the Anti-Defamation League of the Benai B'rit. Both were to create the necessary strife. But in the early years, the ADL operated very timidly, perhaps for fear of a pogrom-like action by an aroused and enraged American people. And the NAACP was practically dormant because its white leadership didn't realize that they would have to develop firebrand Negro leaders, such as Martin Lucifer King, for one, to spark the then completely satisfied and contented mass of Negroes. In addition, he, Schiff, was busy developing and infiltrating the Stooges to serve in all high places in our Washington government and in the job of acquiring control of our money system and the creation of the 16th Amendment. He also was very busy with the organizing of the plot for the takeover of Russia. In short, he was kept so busy with all those jobs that he completely overlooked the supreme job of acquiring complete control of our mass communications media. That oversight was the direct cause for Wilson's failure to lure the United States into the League of Nations, because when Wilson decided to go to the people to overcome the opposition of the large-controlled Senate... Despite his established but phony reputation as a great humanitarian, he found himself faced by a solidly united people and by a loyal press whose only ideology was Americanism and the American way of life. At that time, due to the ineptness and ineffectiveness of both the ADL and the NAACP, there were no organized minority groups, no Negro problems, No so-called anti-Semitic problem to sway the people's thinking. There were no lefts. There were no rights. No prejudices for crafty exploitations. Thus, Wilson's League of Nations appeals fell on deaf ears. That was the end of Woodrow Wilson, the conspirator's great humanitarian. He quickly abandoned his crusade and returned to Washington where he shortly died an imbecile brought on by syphilis. And that was the end of the League of Nations as a corridor into one world government. Of course, that debacle was a terrible disappointment to the masterminds of the Illuminati conspiracy. But they were not discouraged. As I have previously stressed, this enemy never quits. They simply decided to reorganize and try from scratch again. By this time, Schiff was very old and slow. He knew it. He knew that the conspiracy needed a new, younger, and more active generalship. So on his orders, Colonel House and Bernard Baruch organized and set up what they called the Council on Foreign Relations, the new name under which the Illuminati would continue to function in the United States. The hierarchy, officers and directors of the CFR, is composed principally of descendants of the original Illuminati, many of whom had abandoned their old family names and acquired new Americanized names. For one example, we have Dylan, who was Secretary of Treasury of the United States, whose original name was Lepowski. Another example is Paley, head of the CBS TV channel, whose true name is Polinsky. The membership of the CFR is approximately 1,000 in number and contains the heads of virtually every industrial empire in America, such as Blau, president of the U.S. Steel Corporation. Okay, so I'm going to have to stop it there. Um, That is part two, the end of part two, and there will be a little bit to part three.